I was completely intimidated. I was intimidated by him. I was intimidated by going and spending all the magazine's money to do this. I was intimidated to interview Bon Jovi. I was intimidated to write this big story. I was intimidated by David Frick. I was intimidated by the process of overcoming my intimidation of all these things. And then I just had to do it. For whatever reason, that image of David Frick coming up to me, always just like, you've done it before. You can do it again. In 2017, I got to join a group of travel writers who wrote for incredible publications like Forbes and Outside Magazine on a ski resort tour through the Rocky Mountains in Western Canada, in BC. This was an adventure pack trip. I'm talking five days, all the trimmings and every Instagram moment you could dream of. Now, one of the travel writers on the trip really stood out to me because he flexed his biggest muscle. He was a master question asker. He'd sit down with a group of people and would just casually ask a question. And it would spark answers of intrigue and honesty and so much laughter. I would always find a way to make sure I was sitting at his table just so I could hear the questions he'd ask. This question master is David Hawkman. He's a travel writer and journalist in LA with bylines at Forbes, The New York Times, GQ, O Magazine, and Playboy. He's done the TEDx stage in December 2019 in Manhattan Beach, where he presented a talk on pushing through fear to get things done. He founded the UPOD Academy, the Under Promise Over Deliver Academy in 2003, where he supports freelance superheroes to fly. And he does that through workshops, coaching and strategy, and bringing in VIP speakers like Malcolm Gladwell. He's written a children's book called The Potty Train, and he's also interviewed most of the U.S.'s most influential and fascinating celebrities. In this episode, David and I talk about interviewing moments like getting life advice from Oprah or President Donald Trump showing off his gold toilet and even being rattled by the sheer beauty of Penelope Cruz. David also shares about times when things didn't go as expected, but why he secretly loves that and feels that that's where the magic in life really lies straight from LA and one of the most likable humans I know. Here's David on. Did not see that coming. David, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I am thrilled to be here. This is the most exciting thing that's happened to me all pandemic. That's so flattering. (laughs) Oh my God. Thank you so much for making time. I'm so excited. I've got like a million questions to ask you. And what I'd love to do is I'd love to begin with asking you my favorite question that I actually ask at dinner tables. And it is, what personality trait has gotten you or gets you in the most trouble? The most trouble that I get into is that I don't like having small talk. So I will just get right into it and ask the questions that people are afraid to answer. And so people have gotten on me for that in the past. Like you just go right for the main thing that we're afraid to talk about. So For whatever reason, I go for those things and it's like my curse, but I like to engage in real discussions. And I don't do it to be mean. I do it because it's interesting and I like when people have real conversations. I mean, you talked about us meeting on a ski trip and I always think about the ski lift or a gondola and being in that space with someone for 15 or 20 minutes. And it's this perfect opportunity because they can't go anywhere. You don't know them. You can ask them anything. They usually have some sort of mask on, so you can't even identify them if you see them later in the day. And so I just like go for it. And when I'm talking to famous people, I always think about we're on a ski lift together or we're sitting in an airplane next to each other. And it gives you that license to be able to ask people anything. And have you always been like that? Is that been an intrigue point for you since you were a kid? 
It has always been my thing. And I have a mother who loves to talk and loves to talk about what she does in the world. And it's good to have a mother like that who you interview. And my father too, you know, like both of my parents just love to be interviewed. And so that just became a skill of mine. But it's my comfort zone. I would much rather hear about what's going on with you and ask you what's happening and probe around and find out where things are than to talk about what's going on with me. That's so interesting. It's something I've never thought of that is very particular to an interviewer as a personality trait because so many people do love to talk about themselves, but that is something that I've seen for you as a super skill is being able to really use the space and the time with people to ask people questions about themselves. And I've watched people open up in front of you and it's fascinating to watch. It's the whole thing of being a ghost writer or a ghost. It's an interesting place to be in the world where you're the kind of invisible one and people are projecting anything onto you and they're opening up to you in a way that you would almost speak to like someone who's not there or... And it's cool. I mean, I find it really interesting. So I use that to my advantage and I've always used it to my advantage in my career. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine. And I can definitely see that looking at your articles and reading your articles that there is a very fine-tuned way to pose questions that dig deep and that allow people to open up. And speaking about you in the articles that you've written and in your interviews, you actually wrote in a New York Times article that you did with Chris Anderson, who was, as I believe, the man behind TED Talks. As you said, the process of preparing a speaker for a TED main stage appearance is painstaking. And you have also yourself done a TED Talk at Manhattan Beach. And so I'm wondering... When you did this talk on pushing through fear to get things done, was your experience painstaking as well? It was totally painstaking because I am not a performer and you really need to get up and stand in front of 600 people and be a performer. And so I just really rehearsed it. I had interviewed Amy Cuddy, who has like the number two TED Talk of all time. And we became friends after that. And we ski together and we are just good friends. And she gave me just the best advice, which was, Don't think about presenting to a big group. Just find three friendly faces in front of you in the audience. They should be smiling and give the talk to them. And that really, really helped. And she also said, really practice, but don't memorize. So really give the talk, but give it differently every time. I just remembered walking around with holding something in my hand so it would look like a phone, even if it wasn't a phone, and just like talking (laughs) through my version of it and talking through my version of it and giving a different version of it. Speaking is a lot different than writing. So I tell a lot of people who are writers who come to my UPod gatherings where we try to get people to tell their stories in national publications or whatever, I say, well, sometimes like you may not be a writer. And if you can't write the story, maybe you can tell it. And that means just standing up, putting your iPhone up and recording the story. Sometimes it's just like telling a story at a party or telling a story sitting on a ski lift. And that's sometimes the best format. It may not be writing. It may be too hard for you to write. So it was challenging because it wasn't writing, but I really loved it. It was one of the most satisfying things I've done. Wow. And okay, so Amy Cuddy, she is the woman who did the TED Talk on body language. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep, on power pose and standing in your strength and how your body language helps you be the person you want to be. 
And so when you were doing those recordings, because I would imagine you said before that when you get on the chairlift, you like to be the person who's asking the questions. So you're flipping the situation, you're putting yourself in something that you're not necessarily comfortable doing and learning to get better at that. So did you use some of like the power stances when you were doing the recording? Did that help? I did. Yeah. I mean, you're standing on the carpet. You have to kind of keep your hands at your side. You have to feel big and stand in your own strengths as a speaker and storyteller. And that was good. I feel confident when I'm writing and it was helpful to apply some of that to talking because you know it helps you in everything you do. Just to, yeah. I can do this. <laughs> I love that. And you say that a lot. Like I love in the talk about you can do this. Why not you? Which is a beautiful preface. And I think that's something that is an interesting like tagline, especially right now in the way of like, why not you? Because a lot of people through COVID have had their lives tumbled a bit. And the idea of why not you is such an inspiring, positive note. And I can imagine it would pertain to anything. It does. And I think about something that a writer who's a friend of mine, Taffy Ackner, she writes for the New York Times. She said this to me a long time ago, which is everything you write, no matter what it is, if it's going to be meaningful, should be about one thing, which is how we're all going to die one day. And so I think about that a lot. And especially during COVID, it's like we all might die one day. We don't know what's going to happen to us. And so why wait to do the things you want to do? Like this is your opportunity. Get stuff done. Don't be intimidated. Don't set these kind of unrealistic obstacles up that are unnecessary. Just try things. Done is better than perfect. Just get it done. Yeah. I totally agree. And I love that premise because it is such a good lighting a fire under your butt. And the idea of we are all going to die, I think that's a fantastic concept because I think we don't often talk about that, especially in Western society. And it's something that I have really loved discussing and talking about death and the idea around that. And it's put me more in a place, as you just said, of why not me? Like, get it done. Just start. And that's where the greatest lessons fall from. So... I think it's a great sentence. I can imagine when you said that, I've never been to a TED Talk. So when you're leaving the stage and you've told them about why not you and to really get cracking on things, when you leave the stage, are people coming up to talk to you about it? Do you have conversations about it after? Yes. There's also another thing about introverts, which I am, versus extroverts, which is after doing something like this, an introvert is completely depleted. They have done their thing They've done <laughs> it in a way that feels great, but then they wanted to sort of go and retreat and never be spoken to again, at least for like <laughs> 10 hours. So I was more in that state. Some people <laughs> just want to be like, this is the beginning of my acclaim. Where's the after party and the after after party? <laughs> I am not that person. <laughs> like, did you literally come out and just have to receive lineups of people coming at you? I've never seen it myself. You go off and yeah, there are people who want to talk to you, but it's a slow burn. People still okay. talk about it many, many months later. And so that's the joy of it because you prepare this thing and it gives people a sense, not just of your words, but of who you are. Yeah, right. Mm. And does that mean... When you say who you are, when you're out and about and people have seen that talk, do they assume that who you are is someone who's really extroverted and loves to chat? No, because I talk in the talk about being nervous and being an anxious person and being a travel writer who's a nervous traveler. And there were some things in there that I feel like resonate with who I am. So it hit a kind of sweet spot of me 
which I appreciate. So it was a little neurotic. And so I don't think people are expecting to see like Tom Cruise ripping off the car door and coming into the back of the taxi and taking you out. So I'm like the person who's looking for the medevac helicopter on the horizon to get out of here when I arrive somewhere exotic. When you were attending Columbia Journalism School in New York, did you really see yourself one day sitting in Trump Tower interviewing Donald Trump? I didn't specifically see that, but I had a weird reputation as a student for turning every assignment and we would get like three assignments a day just to go out into New York City and start finding stories. But I turned every assignment into a profile where I would find some crazy character and interview them. So Right from the beginning, I was just immediately going out and finding these unusual characters. Even if it was like a science story or a political story or a business story, I always turned it into like finding this one individual who no one had ever seen before and bringing them to the journalism stage. And when you say that, like painting like a really rounded picture of that person, so being able to pull all the details out about them? Exactly. Like the first story I ever sold was about an old time press agent, like a Broadway press agent that you could almost make a movie about. And he was a guy in his late 80s who had like worked with Barbara Streisand when she was like just a kid and all that kind of thing and worked with like old timey Broadway people. And he had a little tiny office on Broadway that was piled with papers and pictures of him with Liza Minnelli and all these people and just like crammed in. It was in the Knickerbocker Hotel, which was in Times Square, and they were going to tear down this building to make a huge high rise. He was the one guy in the building who refused to leave. So I went in there and found him like on the 22nd floor and it was like this empty building. And there he was in there by himself and still like summoning the past of Broadway. And it was just a beautiful story that I had stumbled upon, but it was like telling this guy's story and giving him the space to share that with New York. And it ran and he got some attention. He eventually got out. They gave him a lot of money, I think, to get out. But it was just, that was the kind of thing that I loved, finding these stories that hadn't been told. Wow. And I can see that in the way that you write your stories as well, because they are such a complete story of somebody. And I feel like every article I've read that you've done with Sanjay Gupta or Kevin Hart or Deepak Chopra, like they're all very rounded, very interesting, multidimensional stories of that person. And even the one of Donald Trump, were there any great moments that you didn't expect when you were interviewing him? Well, it's interesting now because when they assigned that story to me, I thought of him as a clown. I thought of him as the guy who was doing The Apprentice and everyone was laughing about him in those days and no one was taking him seriously. He was a caricature. And I had to come up with a list of 100 questions. It was part of the contract. So I had to come up with a list of 100 questions for him, which I did. And I asked people and I remember somebody saying, he seems like a guy who never spends any time alone. Ask him, do you ever spend time alone and what's that like? I thought about that. I remember the first question I asked him when I went in there. Well, it took me about an hour to actually be able to sit down with him because the first thing he did was he spent almost an hour showing me how great he was, showing me all the magazine covers he'd been on, all the awards. He had a gold toilet in his bathroom. He didn't shake my hand because he was a germaphobe which is interesting thinking about the president leading the world during the germiest time ever. But he took this time to kind of show me how great he was. And then we had to kind of get down to it. 
I knew from reading everything about him that this was his line of answers for everything. And I wanted to get him off that line to get something human. So I had two days with him. The first day, I got almost no actual human response from him. It was just all like, he has an answer for that. He has an answer for this. And I tried to get him off script, but it was really hard. And then his phone rang and it was Don Jr., his son, calling. And I saw something in him that seemed a little more human when he was on the phone with Don. And afterwards I said, so just got to ask you, do you think you're kids have this pressure to live up to something. You know, I see like we're in Trump Tower now and I look out and there's Trump Park across the park and your name's on all these buildings. Like there's got to be some pressure for them to live up to the Trump name. And something came over him that was a little more human. And he talked about his family. We know how important his family is because they're his cabinet, basically. And I started to get a human response from him. Then when I went in the next day, I started with the family And we got to some real places, which I thought was interesting. And so it was that, finding that way in, that made the difference. Yeah. You need to just be listening and looking for cues and looking at sort of like where his eyes stop glazing over. And that's where I like to pursue questions. Wow. And so you're really thinking on your feet when you're in those interviews as well. Especially if it's not going well. Yeah, right. Wow. Okay. Well, you can definitely see that because in the interview, I was so blown away that you even, like you were talking about his family, you were talking about his wife, you asked him about Viagra, which was such a fascinating kind of usurping of the power. And it was a really interesting dialogue that he had around it. It sounded like there was something very human in that exchange. And obviously it sounds like that's from you digging and finding the way in to be able to ask him those kind of questions that you get a response. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard when somebody doesn't want to do that. I mean, it could be really, really hard. And sometimes it's just, it doesn't work, but you got to try. You have to try. I don't like to be bored in interviews. So if it's not going well, I'll just completely change the subject. Or I'll say to someone, you know, I just have to ask you, like, do you want to just end this right now? Because it seems like you're not that interested. So it's fine with me. I mean, we can end this right now. And that often is a scary moment, but It works to get people to feel like, okay, this person is not taking my bullshit. So that's a pretty ballsy move, like to be able to say that, because obviously there's a lot on the line. They could just go, yeah, you're right. I'm not really liking this. Let's go. Yeah. Who was your most difficult interviewee? A lot of times it's people that you expect to be one way or who are professionally a certain way, and then they end up not being that thing. So for me, a lot of times it's comedians like Will Ferrell. Ben Stiller, Kevin Hart, they're much, much more serious and much more focused on their business and on their privacy. They're not on all the time. People expect them to be funny all the time and they're not and they don't want to be. And I understand that. But it's like, ooh, 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 ooh. You walk in somewhere and they're like, this is not who I thought it was going to be. And in those three cases, they're extremely different from who they are, but it's almost always professional comedians. Because I think when you're a professional comedian, you are a professional comedian for a reason, because you're coming from a place of pain in your life. You're trying to be the clown to try to soothe some sort of sadness inside of you. And I'm not diagnosing any of those people, but I find that as a common in the Venn diagram, the most difficult are comedians. And I've interviewed a lot of them. But also some of the most interesting, like one of the very first interviews I did was with the famous comedian, he's dead now, George Carlin. And he was just so brilliant, but 
extremely eccentric in a way. Like he kept every thought of his on a post-it note and he covered his walls with post-it notes. And so whether it was like a one-liner or a cosmic thought that he had or some crazy comeback, he had his whole wall was like wallpapered with post-it notes and comedians. They're an unusual crew. (laughs) And it sounds like you found a way to navigate that because I can imagine the first one would have been quite difficult. And then you slowly start to get a feel for what that's going to be like to prepare for it. Though, I don't know, are you ever prepared for that situation? I like when things go wrong. Like the most boring interview is when nothing goes wrong. Like everything was great. And this was exactly what you thought. No, it's like when things go a little crazy, that's good. Like when people say too much or they tell you too much, but it's almost always comedians. Wow. I love that. Like, that's so interesting because there's not a lot of, I would say, careers or life paths or something that you're doing in your life where you want something to throw you off and to be challenging and a little bit like throws you off your game during it. So I like that comedians provide that opportunity for you. And it's a collaboration too. It's a collaboration. I mean, just like we're doing now, like you want this to be interesting and I want this to be interesting. And so you just are sort of playing back and forth, like, where can we go next? What's next? I was thinking about something else, which is, this was from Maria Popova. She came and spoke to our group, as you mentioned, and she talks about this book that's called How to Be an Adult, which I love. I love that title. It's written by a guy named David Riccio, R-I-C-H-I-O. And there's only like one thing I remember from the book, which was one line, and it's this. And I think about it every day which is ask for 100% of what you want from 100% of the people in your life 100% of the time. And so... (laughs) Just letting that land. Yeah. Yeah. And so thinking about that with famous people or with people who you're asking questions, like I'm going to ask them 100% of everything that I want in this time that I have with them. Because this time in general on earth could be short. So go for it. And they have the option not to answer it, but it's important. It's like, why waste that opportunity? And I'm not saying just be nosy. I'm saying like to have a meaningful conversation. So ask what you really want. But that applies to relationships. It applies to asking for money that you want. It applies to asking for the kind of opportunities you want, working with a certain level of people, with collaborations, with asking what you want from your career, like, well, why can't I be the one who's doing this thing? And I feel like that has been a guide for me, particularly as a freelancer who has to sort of self-direct. I'm the only one who is making this stuff happen. So it's like, you got to just ask for the big things. And then if those things don't happen, work around it and ask somebody else. I'm thinking as you're talking about that is that, and you said it in the end, I was thinking is that it really makes you very accountable in your life for everything. Like if things aren't chugging along and throwing you different lines and giving you an opportunity to kind of stretch yourself and push yourself. And what I love also is request the same from other people. It really makes you accountable to what's happening in your life. Yeah. Because who else is going to do it? It's like if you're not going to be living this kind of exemplary life, like, I don't know, this is it this is it. So you just have to take big steps and you don't have to do it every day because it's exhausting, but at least have a few big steps in your 
plan yeah. and be doing little steps toward them on a regular basis. Because otherwise, it's so easy to kind of just fall into the middle where there's like a lack of satisfaction and a frustration before you go to bed or, I don't know, like not having what you want. But we can shape these things and you could do it at any point in your life. I mean, my mother's doing it now in her 80s. She's becoming more politically active than she ever was. And her famous line that resonates with a lot of people, she used to say it, what was like this kind of aha moment from therapy that she had when she was in her 40s and trying to figure out what to do as a kind of some woman who grew up in the 50s, but went through the women's lib movement, was trying to make sense of it all. And she was really anxious. And then at one point, this sentence kind of appeared to her, like in almost like in bronze on marble, which was, worry is not an action. And so she just was like, that's right. Like, if I'm worrying, that's just rumination about things, but it's not doing anything. Burning fuel. Yeah. So, but what action can I take? Okay, well, I can get into therapy. I can not be in this friendship. I can become more politically active. So that has guided me as well, just thinking about that. It can be overwhelming right now with what's happening. So the idea of being able to take baby steps and big steps, but to be taking steps, I think is important. Right. And I think about like building a bridge to a bridge to a bridge to a bridge, (laughs) and eventually you get there. So it's not like, oh, I want to have a podcast that's like, I have a million listeners. Like a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, I want to be a columnist for the New York Times. And I was like, have you ever written a column for the New York Times? No, 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 but I want to be a columnist. I'm like, okay, well, you have to write one, like write one and see how that goes. Okay, okay. But there's like a kind of frustration, but that's how you do it. And while you're writing that one, that's it. You're a columnist right there. It's like, if you want to write a screenplay, it's like, while you're writing the screenplay, it's like, you're in it already. You told me once that as an art journalist, you get to ask all the nosy, ballsy, wildcard questions that come into your mind. And when we were on the trip in BC over dinner one night, you actually had said that you always have a one go-to question. There was this one question. I can't remember what it was. I was trying to think of it. And you said you always get a really great response from it. Do you remember what that one question is? The question has changed over the years, but I think the one that I was asking them was, if it all ended tomorrow, what would upset you most about the person that you didn't get to become? Okay. So what would upset you most about the person that you didn't get to become? And that stirs a lot of things for people. Now I've changed it. The person who does Humans of New York, that beautiful Instagram and blog, he has a question. And he always asks his question, not now because he's not out in the streets as much, but he gets down to the level or below the level of the person that he's asking the question. So physically, if someone's sitting on a park bench in Madison Square in New York, he will get down below them to kind of start talking and to say like, hey, can I ask you a couple of questions? It just kind of puts him in that position. And then one of his questions that he always asks is, what's your greatest challenge right now? And that I've been finding has been illuminating and people always stop. And the biggest compliment you can get as an interviewer is when someone says, great question, great question. I'm always like, there's like a little adrenaline boost when that happens. So endorphins. 
I get a lot of great question because it means they're thinking. It kind of goes back to something you were speaking about before, which really is about understanding our mortality or understanding the fact that we are all on a similar path and that there is a heaviness sometimes to it, but that there's beauty within that as well. And to really be able to ask someone a question that allows someone to be heard. And I think as humans, we really want to be heard. Completely. And it's also like, it's not interesting when everything is fine. Like you're a much more interesting person because it's okay to not be okay. And the person who's telling me like, things are not a hundred percent. And I think the whole world is feeling that right now. And so if you can discuss that, that's a real conversation. I mean, it's not a hundred percent. It's weird with masks and it's, people are dying and we don't know what the future is going to be. And there's so many unknowns and so much sort of the 40 moods of every day. And that's life right now. And so to be able to discuss that with another person in a real way feels important. Yeah. And it's interesting because something I was thinking about that really spurred me on when I was wanting to do this podcast was understanding that life isn't this straight road to this fairy tale ending that we believe when we're growing up. And it's so different. And it's even more different nowadays, obviously, because COVID has made it so much more different. And it's not really this kind of very straight line. It's messy. It's confusing. There's so many hiccups in it. And our trajectory is really full of these ups and downs. I think as well, and I'm seeing it more and more, are these big pivot moments like moments that happen to us that shift the direction that we're going on. And I would love if you could take us to a moment when you had one of your most impactful pivots. Well, Steven Johnson, the writer, talks about the adjacent possible, which is like this area that's right next to you that you might not even know exists, but it's always there. And if you can step into it, and sometimes it's about just recognizing the clash of ideas that are happening around you, or taking suggestions and naming them, or noticing what you're noticing and giving voice to that, or believing in something that everybody else sort of writes off and says, that's crazy. But you're the one who's saying, you know what, I actually think I'm going to stick with this thing. That's where pivots happen. They happen when you recognize something that nobody else does, or you take the moment and you make sense of it in a way. Sometimes you don't have a choice. So sometimes it could be an illness that forces you to do something. But sometimes it is like, yeah, I'm just going to try this and see where it goes. So I feel like that happens all the time for me, where you just have to say yes to something and you see where it goes. In bigger ways, I mean, it happened when... Like I met my wife for the first time and I've told you that in the past where like I had just moved from New York and she had been in LA for a while and we just met looking for an apartment. The person who was showing us the apartment was 45 minutes late and we just sat there talking. And over the course of that time, I just thought like, this is an interesting person and like I want to know more about her. Like, And you just make that decision like I'm not somebody who like gives my information to somebody like in a casual way. But for whatever reason, like I had a business card, I gave her the card and was like, let's just like continue this conversation. And that little moment was a pivot where like meeting somebody on the street and here we are like 20 years later and it's still the magical 
<laughs> thing that's happening in our lives. It was like the most important passing of cards that ever happened for us. But it's those things where you take an opportunity, you recognize something that fits right in your sweet spot of where you are, but where you think maybe you can be, and you act on it. Have you acted on a pivot recently that didn't go well? That's a good question. <laughs> Sometimes when you do things for the wrong reasons, they don't work well. And one of the biggest reasons you do things is for money. And so I recently made a decision that where someone said, well, I think there's a big budget for this. And I said, oh, that sounds good because we don't know where the economy is. And so I said yes to something that just is, sometimes you just, there's no amount of money that <laughs> people can pay you to just feel like this is challenging emotionally, the work and difficult. And so, yeah, it was a pivot and you have to just kind of recognize why you make certain decisions. So it's a learning experience. It will be over. But yes, that was probably not the greatest choice that I've ever made. Because then, yeah. you know, it's like you can always make money some other way. But sometimes we're lured into thinking that the pivot is all about this kind of pile of gold over here or this sort of relationship that seems like it's right, but is actually repeating patterns that are not healthy for you. There's all kinds of different things that are these false illusion pivots that are false horizons. And we just step into these traps. So I love that you've said the point too, that a couple things, like number one, I love that from a pivot, good or bad, you're always going to learn something. There's always something to learn from it. But there is a difference in between the two things that you spoke to. One of them felt when you were talking about your wife was very gut based. It was very like, it was such a pull. Whereas the one that wasn't maybe the greatest pivot was one that was born from a desire from your mind. And it's interesting. I feel like pivots, there's something to them, not to stop and not to take pivots. There's always something to learn from them. But I think there's so much to be learned from that kind of gut pull or that gut that tells you like, oh, this feels good. Or as opposed to like, maybe I should do this because there's money involved, which is, it's interesting that pivots can revolve around how that feels in your gut as opposed to how that feels in your head. I think it's just important to ask yourself these questions. And this is one of my favorite little moments from a celebrity interview. I interviewed Oprah and she famously told me, I said, Oprah, you were, and it's hard to get a word in with Oprah because she just talks in these incredible orations that are beautiful. But like, if you get four questions in, in an hour, you're lucky. But I said, Oprah, so many people ask you, what is the meaning of life? What is the secret of life? I just have to ask you, what is the secret of life? How do you do it? How do you find your way? And she's somebody who says your name a lot. So she just kept saying, David, I'm going to tell you how to find the secret of life right now, David. David, what you do is you close your eyes every morning and you say to yourself these words, David. David, what do I want? David, what do I need? And just say them over and over to yourself for a couple minutes. David, what do I want? What do I need? And 
it's interesting though. Like now when I'm making a big decision, I think about that. Like Oprah's in the little figure on my shoulder saying, what do you want, David? And so it's helpful. Everything I know about life, I learned from celebrities sounds like for me behind that is that it's human beings and it can be people who are guarded and finding out more about them. And I think when you're interviewing people and you're finding out how people tick, which is what it sounds like from the beginning you were saying is that it's always about digging in and finding out how they tick. So you're probably learning quite a lot through that. It's true. I mean, I do have a detector for when relationships are not going to go well. And I've interviewed a bunch of people who are in famous relationships and I'll come home and I'll say to my wife, she'll be like, how was it? I'll be like, "Mm." I give them a month. And often it's like another year, but, or at least until the news gets out. But for some reason, you can tell, you can tell just based on a few questions. Yeah. Mm, Wow. A few questions. Now it's like, I want to know what the questions are. (laughs) How is blah, 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 as far as supporting you on this sort of new part of your career? Or what do you guys do for fun? And like, just, you can tell from the response. You can tell from the delays and some of the responses. Now, I would love to talk to you about worth. And in the lead up to starting this podcast, I had some very real moments of doubt. And I was thinking like, why would somebody listen to me, you know, in this ocean of podcasts? And I had moments where I was feeling quite unworthy. And I'd love to know if you can tell me about a time where you felt unworthy. That's a good question. I'm pausing. I'm trying to think. (laughs) So you're a very worthy interviewer. I do feel like it's something that everyone fights all the time. Whenever you've done something that you haven't done before, or even when you've done something that you have done before. I mean, to me, it always comes down to this image. When I first did one of my big celebrity interviews, I interviewed John Bon Jovi, the singer, in Amsterdam. And it was a big deal. Like they're flying me from New York to Amsterdam to go spend three days with this guy. And like, I went on stage with him. It was like a crazy experience and I felt completely unworthy. And then I felt unworthy to write. I had to write 3,000 words on Bon Jovi and I hadn't done a story like that. And I remember sitting in the back of the plane, there was this guy who was another magazine writer, a famous magazine writer named David Frick. He's a Rolling Stone writer and he's written for them for a very long time. And he's one of their kind of like almost famous type guys. And he was sitting in first class because that was like a time when they would still fly like the big Rolling Stone writers to first class. He had been in Amsterdam to interview the Rolling Stones. I was there to interview Bon Jovi. I was sitting in the literally like the last seat of the airplane in the back of the plane. And I remember David came back and he knew me because we worked in the same office. And (laughs) he said, hey, how's it going? I was like, I'm good. I'm writing this Bon Jovi story. I literally had a blank document in front of me. And he was like, you're going to have to do better than that. I was completely intimidated. I was intimidated by him. I was intimidated by going and spending all the magazine's money to do this. I was intimidated to interview Bon Jovi. I was intimidated to write this big story. I was intimidated by David Frick. I was intimidated by the process of overcoming my intimidation of all these things. And then I just had to do it. And so I think about all that for whatever reason, that image of David Frick coming up to me, always just like, you've done it before. You can do it again. So that worry is not an action. It's like, pushing it aside and thinking, what can I do to do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing? And so for you, it's like the same. It's like, what's the next thing you can do toward making this great? Who's the next guest you can get? And I feel like the slow build of that starts to be the remedy for the 
doubt. Which I guess is the action, which is instead of it being the worthiness, worry not being in action, when you're in action, then you're somehow coming out of the worry and the worthiness. And then use models, like look at great models who are doing it better than you and say like, what are they doing? Study it. And then reverse engineer and say like, how are they doing it so well? What are the things that they're doing? And then just steal it. Ooh, I love that. That's (laughs) great. (laughs) Yep. Because it's never going to be exactly the same when you do it. It's always going to be recreated in your own image. I was thinking about you stepping into this space of starting the academy in 2003 and supporting all these freelancers and stepping into a place of feeling worthy to be a teacher because you're writing and that's a huge jump because there's so many people that are consuming your content, but then you're standing up in front of people as a teacher. What was that process like? I mean, for me, it's about thinking about the people who are teachers for me and the things that I wanted. It's always about inventing the life that you want, right? So inventing the kind of perfect advice that you wish that you had gotten, inventing the guidebook that you wish you had done, inventing the podcast that you wish was out there, writing the story that you wish you could see if you opened up the New York Times or GQ or whatever, creating a tone for inventing your way forward. And so I think about like, all the great people out there and what I can do that's just a little bit different. And that, it just feels like serving others the way that people have helped me. It's just like, I love the people who've just been generous with me. And it's like, I see that it is helpful and it doesn't cost me anything. Like it's good for me to just help people connect with their success. It sounds like there's a bit of paying it forward and this sense of service to others. There's enough room for everybody, right? So there's enough room for everybody. And so sometimes people get tight around sharing contacts or sharing advice or whatever it is. But I feel like it ends up being useful when there's a network of people helping each other. Because I need that. Like I need other writers because when I need help, I need to call on other writers to say, can you just read this and tell me, like, how can I make it 10% better? And then they make it 40% better. And that's so lovely because something I was thinking about today around, it's a saying that's been around for a long time, but it's something that I'm thinking a lot about these days, which is comparison is the thief of joy. And it sounds like what you're doing in being able to bring people closer to you and being able to reach out to someone else who is also a writer and to bring people together, there's something about, it's not about comparison. It sounds very, I can't think of the word at all. It's escaping me right now, but it sounds like there's a real kind of freedom within that and that there is something that is much larger that you're stepping into with that. Yeah. I mean, the jokey subtitle of UPOD Academy is, I call it a semi-secret school for freelance superheroes, but it's the superhero part that's interesting because I see you as a superhero, right? And I've told you that before. And I think that like, for me to give you that tiny, just affirmation about that is nothing for me, but it can be really helpful when you're trying to do something that you haven't done before. And so I feel like to have a whole group of people who are just reflecting like, yes, you can do this. Like we see the thing that is beyond all obstacles. And what if I could do this without failing and all that? Like, but I see you like that. And so that feels good to be able to say like, I see the full picture of who you can be. And so now get it done. Like get over yourself, put a rubber band on your wrist and just snap it every time you're like, I can't do this. We're like, I don't want whiners. Come on, get this done. We see you. You're a superhero. Come on. 
<laughs> you're such a great cheerleader. You're amazing. And knowing that you're out there doing that. I'm not doing it to be a cheerleader. Like it's authentic. And I feel like we just need to tell each other these things. I couldn't agree more. It's a very generous way to be in the world. And I think now is a really lovely time to be hearing that. I love that. Thank you. Now, I would love to hit you with five questions and we'll just do them fast and furious. So I'd love to ask you, what terrible movie do you love? Well, my favorite movie is a movie that no one else will watch with me, which is an old movie from the 80s called My Dinner with Andre. It's a movie by Louis Mal where two guys go to dinner for two hours and just talk. Everyone thinks it's the most boring movie in the world. And I love it because there's zero small talk. Have you ever been interviewing someone and done something that threw you off your game? I had a panic attack talking to Penelope Cruz, who at the time I thought was the most beautiful and intimidating woman in the world. And I just started to sweat. And she is so cool and so contained. And English is not her first language. And I don't think we translated very well to each other. What books are on your nightstand right now? I don't have any books on my nightstand. I am a terrible reader. Everything is on my Kindle. I just read So You Want to Talk About Race. And that is the book that I'm just sort of wrapping up right now. But I read The New Yorker. I read nonfiction. I read The New York Times. I read just constant news and doom scrolling, which I shouldn't do, especially in the middle of the night. What are you listening to? I am listening to a lot of Gregory Porter. I am listening to a lot of all over the place. Gosh, what am I listening to? You know what I'm listening to a lot, which is... Your playlists on Spotify are great. I love them. I've said you should be a DJ. If the podcast business is not enough for you, I think you can become a DJ. <laughs> Just the kind of like groovy vibe of it all. There's several answers that I get from celebrities that are like the worst answers to things. And when I ask, what are you listening to? And they say everything, that's one of the worst. But among the five worst interview answers to get are, I'm so blessed Anything that starts with at the end of the day, we're not doing brain surgery. And let me get back to you on that because no one will ever get back to you. No one will ever get back to you if they say that. Okay, sorry. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I didn't have a big vision of where I wanted to be. I know I didn't want to be working in an office. I didn't necessarily want to be in quarantine for a year, but I like stimulation. I like new places. I like novelty. I like being out skiing, meeting people, doing adventurous, exciting, exotic things as a travel writer and interviewing amazing people as an interviewer. And so I like that part of it. This kind of shutdown has made me focus on other things. So I think we're all trying to figure out are we where we want to be. So some days yes, some days no, and some days during the day yes and no, 50 different ways and times. Thank you so much, David. I so appreciate your time. This has been hugely illuminating and I've learned so much. I really appreciate your time and sharing such diverse and fascinating insights. And I love that we've kind of got a little bit of Oprah, a little purr on the shoulder, but just even learning what kind of spurs you on in the day and what keeps you motivated and driven. And I love hearing about your generous spirit. I think that's a beautiful thing to have out in the world. Thank you. You are a great interviewer. And I will say it, it does feel funny to be the recipient of questions because it feels completely narcissistic. I feel like I learned nothing about you. You were the ghost 
you're the invisible person. It really makes me uncomfortable. So I would very much like to spend another hour and a half just asking you all these questions because it's honestly much more interesting to me. So <laughs> good for you for doing this show. You did a great job and best of luck as it moves forward. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you so much. That's David Hockman, travel writer, TEDx speaker, and founder of the UPod Academy. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show and for joining me in exploring the upside of the unexpected to see that life is in a straight line. Thank goodness, because that is where the magic lies. To read David's articles, head to davidhockman.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-H-O-C-H-M-A-N. And to find out more about the UPod Academy, head to upodacademy.com. That's U-P-O-D-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y.com. As per David's request that I become a DJ, I decided instead to make a Spotify playlist. So head to spotify.com to find the Didn't See That Coming podcast public playlist with about 12 hours of music on it. So have a listen if you go on a road trip or want to jam through your workday. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And you can find all the links and resources from this episode in the episode notes. If you have any feedback and want to send me a note, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send me a DM on Instagram at didn't see that coming underscore underscore. I'm Zoe Weldon, and you've been listening to Didn't See That Coming. Until next time, keep looking for the magic on the other side of the unexpected. I didn't know that. I thought you meant something else. So when you said <laughs> that people were asking, like, you didn't ask the question that he asked. I thought you meant, which question do you ask? So I thought I was going to be able to just say like, oh, here are the two questions I always ask. I didn't know <laughs> you were going to ask me the question. <laughs> <laughs>